You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Before I begin, as we mark the Feast of Pentecost, a day in which we are invited to recall uh, stories of real weight about the new coming of God's Spirit upon us. We do so in a world that is marked still by considerable anxiety, fear, and uncertainty around the global pandemic, and then particularly south of the border from us, cities that are caught up in real fear and violence and anger and an uncertainty that we can hardly imagine. We pray God's wise, discerning, life-giving spirit upon all in those places. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So, We've arrived at the Feast of Pentecost, fully 50 days after Easter Sunday, and now the transition into ordinary time begins, ordinary time in the liturgical calendar, having just observed the whole of Eastertide and half of Lent in this online configuration, one hardly knows what ordinary is anymore. Still, we have before us two different stories of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That very dramatic story from the book of Acts, filled with wind and fire. Then a far gentler story from the Gospel according to John, in which Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. There's something to be gleaned from both stories, and a thing or two to wrestle through as well. So let me start with a dramatic story from Acts. The disciples are together. Quote, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them. The tongue rested on each of them. What is being described here by Luke is a vivid and very visceral experience in which they they have an experience of seeing and feeling God's holiness, God's spirit right there with them, in them, through them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability and out into the streets they go, where devout Jews from every nation under heaven hear them speaking in their own languages. This is hardly what one could rightly describe as being an ordinary experience. No, this is a sort of a landmark or critical moment in the Greek kairos experience in which something crucial is being communicated, both to those folks in the streets of Jerusalem and to we who read this story 2,000 years later. 
Now, it's sometimes suggested that this experience of multiple languages, everybody hearing the good news in their own language, is the undoing or the healing of the story of the Tower of Babel. That's a story that comes from the very early chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, which are often referred to by the scholars as the proto-history of Israel. They come from, from the almost lost in the mists of time. After those 11 chapters end, the style of the narrative changes. Abram and Sarai appear, and it's sort of a narrative and a more historical kind of a flow to it. But those early chapters, I mean, they're elusive stories. If you recall the ancient Babel story, the people say to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. But soon God scuttles this plan by introducing all sorts of languages and the people scatter, each taking their languages in different directions. It's often read as an account of how different human languages came to be, as well as a critique of the human propensity to try to shape and control our own destiny to build the tower that will reach heaven, the propensity to try to be our own gods. That's fine so far as it goes. But in his book, Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs offers a most intriguing reading of the story of the Tower of Babel, and one that actually connects quite beautifully to the Pentecost story from Acts. Rabbi Sachs points out that in the chapter before the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 10, humanity has already been described as having been divided into 70 different nations, each with its own language. There are already a multiplicity of languages. So what do we make of that when we then bump into the Babel story? Well, in the reading offered by Rabbi Sachs, quote, the unity of language at the beginning of Genesis 11, the, the Tower story, was not a natural unity, but imposed it is describing the practice of the world's first empires. We have historical evidence dating back to the Neo-Assyrians that conquerors imposed their own language on the peoples they defeated. Babel is a critique of imperialism. Babel, he continues, represents an empire that subjugates entire populations at the cost of their distinct identities and liberties. When at the end of the Babel story, God confuses the language of the builders, he's not creating a new state of affairs, but restoring the old. That's fascinating. In this way of reading things, diversity 
and difference are an intended good, not a punishment or a wound or a sign of division, but an intended good. Now that's actually reinforced in the Pentecost story from Acts. As each person hears the gospel proclaimed in his or her own mother tongue. Now that's one of the great Reformation principles as well. As for the first time the scriptures and the liturgies were translated into the languages of the people. The languages of the various nations of Europe, the English, French, German, and so on. What's more, listen to these reflections from David Bartlett, who writes, Professor Laman Sana of Yale Divinity School grew up as a Muslim and converted to Christianity. He has a great appreciation for both faiths, but he has pointed out that Christianity, unlike Islam, believes in the translation of our sacred texts. The Quran is really only the Quran in Arabic. The Bible is the Bible, whether in Hebrew and Greek, or in French, or English, or Hindi. This is a gift of the Spirit. Diversity. That we can apprehend, hear, engage, integrate the good news in our own mother tongues, in our own cultures, in our own selves. Yes, certainly in John 17, Jesus does pray that all may be one. Yet I think it's quite fair to say that the unity of the body of Christ is to be expressed in and through our diversity. That's very much what's in view as the book of Acts continues. As we're introduced to Paul, who launches into his mission among the Gentiles, he goes to these places and they remain Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians, but now Christian Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians. It is when the church has forgotten the gift that is diversity and difference that its missionary work has gotten into the most trouble, when it ties itself too tightly to European and Western culture and neglects the Bible's own stories of how this great good news transcends any one culture. The languages, the multiple languages on the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost must speak to us of the beauty of difference and diversity. Now, what might the story told in the Gospel according to John have to say or to add? It's a story set not 50 days after Easter Day, but actually in John's telling in the context of Jesus, his first resurrection appearance to the disciples. Now, as Matt Skinner points out, you might have experienced the story something like this. Jesus bestows peace upon his worried followers. Great! Jesus fills them with the Holy Spirit. Great! Jesus tells them they can forgive or retain other people's sins. Huh? Receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus says to them. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Ha is right. Skinner's point, though, is that to get beyond that ha and move past some of the more questionable, problematic ways in which this passage has been put into practice over the centuries, one must first pay attention to what Jesus teaches about sin, particularly how John conveys Jesus' teaching in his own understanding of the good news. Jesus, comments Skinner, is not appointing the church as his moral watchdog, nor does he commission it to arbitrate people's assets and liabilities on a heavenly balance sheet. Sin in John is not about moral failings. Primarily, it is an inability or a refusal to recognize God's revelation when confronted by it in Jesus. Sin, in other words, is what keeps us at a distance from God, most specifically at a distance from God made known to us in Jesus. Consequently, Skinner continues, the resurrected Christ tells his followers, all his followers, not just those disciples, but all of his followers, that through the Spirit that enables them to bear witness, they can set people free from that estranged set of affairs. They can be part of seeing others come to believe in Jesus and what he discloses. Failure to bear witness, Jesus warns, will result in the opposite. A world full of people left unable to grasp the knowledge of God. That is what it means to retain sins. It's not a case of a little band of disciples being given power over the eternal destiny of others by virtue of being able themselves to forgive or refuse to forgive transgressions, but rather this is part of their commissioning to bear witness to the good news of God in Christ and to do that through the Spirit, the very breath of God which Jesus has bestowed upon them. This is not actually a power thing at all, but really a responsibility to keep living and speaking and doing the good news. And as Matt Skinner notes, Jesus is telling this not only to those disciples, but to all of his followers across the ages Jesus has, in this sense, breathed upon us as well as upon the disciples. The challenge that comes with that is to actually live like we are imbued with the Spirit, a good news people. Now, take that together with the celebration of difference and diversity that is evidenced in the story from Acts, and don't you have a marvelous picture of what it could mean and should mean to be the body of Christ. 
a body with room for every mother tongue and every distinctive culture, English and Hindi, Inuit and South African expressions of the one body of Christ. And called to be a people who want to open the door to any and all who would come in. A people who have been spirit-breathed to actually live the good news wherever we are. I'd join a church like that. <laughs> May God's holy and healing spirit be upon all of us as we continue to learn what it means to be Christ's body in the world. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.